So you guys have been in the life of Solomon, looking at the life of King Solomon. Uh, I'm going to be spending time in chapters 10 and 11. I'll touch down specifically there. So if you have a Bible, that's super cool. If you have a device, that is also awesome. Um, But I'll touch us down a handful of times throughout the sermon today. But you guys have been answering a question. Even though you didn't know it, and maybe it wasn't asked specifically uh, throughout the series, but you have been answering a question week in and week out. Why is the life of Solomon in the Bible? What is this doing here? And there was some apparent answers. Chapters 1 through 10 give some apparent answers. As you feel hope build up in you, anticipation building up in you that I think this is the guy. I think this is the fulfillment of the promises that God gave to his people all the way back in Genesis 3 that God was going to restore his relationship to his people. And he is going to bring them back into this this wonderful relationship of where God walks personally with his people. It seems like that's where the life and ministry of Solomon is going. And so Isaac keeps putting this list in front of you guys and we keep adding to it that Solomon is the Shalom king in the city of Shalom in the garden-like paradise called the promised land while maintaining a Shema heart and resisting the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he's able to cut through truth and lie by his wisdom. And now you guys saw he built the temple of God and God blessed it. He filled it with his glory. His presence now rests with his people. Week in and week out, you have felt this just anticipation. He, he's it. He's the guy. He's the fulfillment of all these promises, the promises that God gave to his people that he loves. He's fulfilling them here in the life of Solomon. And once you get to chapter 10, it's more of the same. He gets this celebrity visit from uh, the Queen of Sheba, which most commentators agree is modern-day Ethiopia, And she is obviously incredibly, extravagantly rich as well. And she's heard about what's been going on in Israel. And so she's a Gentile woman. She is not a worshiper of Yahweh, but she comes to visit Solomon. And we get this visit in chapter 10 of 1 Kings. And I'm going to read just verse 6, 6 through 9, about what happens when she visits. Listen. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. I came uh, and behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Now listen to this, verse nine. This should make our jaws drop. Blessed be Yahweh, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because Yahweh loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Do you hear that? This is a Gentile pagan queen ruler who comes in and says, blessed be Yahweh. So we're just adding to our list. Not only is, are all of these promises being fulfilled, but also the promise made to Abraham that his blessing would also be a blessing to the nations is coming true right before our eyes. The nations are coming to Israel, being drawn to Israel, and they're worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. And now she is just, she's just an example. It says even more in verse 24, the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon. She is one example, but all the nations are being drawn to Israel. And so we're seeing it happen right before our eyes and we feel hope build up in us 
It's happening. It's happening. God's fulfilling his promises to his people. But, but, for every bit that we read like this, there's some cracks forming in the foundation, as Isaac pointed out a couple weeks ago. We, we kind of like have to turn a little bit of a blind eye as we read through because we read good thing, good thing, good thing. And then every once in a while you read like he had a whole fleet of slave labor. And you're like, well, what? Why, why do you have that? And then it just sort of keeps moving on. And we have more descriptions of good things, of good things and good things. And, but as those cracks start forming, these unchecked compromises, as they begin spreading, we begin reading stuff like, the end of chapter 10. And I'm going to read these to you. You don't even got to look at them. I just want you to listen for the emphasis. What is the author trying to tell us about Solomon? Because I'm pretty sure you'll be able to hear it, okay? Are you guys ready? Start in verse 14. Just listen for the emphasis. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. Now listen to his throne. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top and on each side of the seat were armrests with two lions standing beside the armrest while 12 lions stood there, one on each end of the step on the six steps the like of it was never made in any kingdom all kingdom solomon's drinking vessels were of gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest of lebanon were of pure gold none were of silver silver was not even considered as anything in the days of solomon and then he said fleets would come in with gold silver ivory apes and peacocks what was the emphasis what's the author trying to tell us there is an unexceptionally excess of gold to the point where silver is not even useful. Like nobody even cares about it anymore. It's like pebbles, it's like rocks, silver is because gold is there in abundance, okay? Crack in the foundation. Second thing I want you to see. It says, in verse, starting in verse 26, and Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom the st- he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. Okay, And Solomon's import of horses, listen to where they came from, from Egypt and Ku, a chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Hittites, Syria, Egypt, what is going on? So he has all these abundance of horses, but he's also shipping out to the enemies of God imports or exports out to them, which is so, should stand out to us because the queen of Sheba said, hey, you're in the position that you are in, for the sake of righteousness and justice. But now he's exporting uh, supplies to the enemies of Israel. Those are, those are prominent enemies of Israel, Egypt, uh, uh, Hittites, and Syria. Okay, but one more, ready? By the time you get to chapter 11, you ready? Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. 
from the nations concerning which the Lord had said specifically to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. What we're seeing here in gold, chariots and horses, and wives are the cracks are reading, reaching their culmination and everything is about to fall apart. Now, you've had it pointed out to you that as you read through 1 Kings, you should have the book of Deuteronomy in your mind, always in the background, always, always a shadow cast by everything that you're reading in 1 Kings, specifically the instructions to a king that look like this. Only he, the king, must not acquire many horses ah, for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt. He's not only getting stuff from Egypt, but giving stuff to Egypt to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Is a thousand a lot? Do <laughs> you think? And, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Shall not. With that decisively in the background, and as you finish up chapter 10 heading into 11, what realization do we come to? There's no more mystery. There, there's, there's no more hoping, no more anticipation. Solomon is definitively not the promised king. He is not the snake-crushing king who is going to restore the relationship of Israel back to God. Solomon is not the Christ. But you already know that, right? You already know that. I'm not like, that's not some big reveal. Nobody in here was like, oh, he's not. Like, we know that. We know that already. And so do the first readers of, of the book of First Kings, of book of Kings, that were first hearing it, they know, they know how it went. We know how it goes. So we know he is not the Christ. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, the Christ who was, who was to come, the true snake-crushing king, he declared something greater than Solomon is here. And he embodied all of those promises. So we come back to the question, why is the life of Solomon in the Bible? Why is it here? If it's not a story about fulfilled promises, why, what are we supposed to gain from it? What are we supposed to learn? What helps us along in our life of trying to follow Jesus? It's this. The life of Solomon is not a story of a fulfilled promise, but rather a sobering warning. The desired effect of for the people of God from the life of Solomon is a warning from the Lord. And so our job as we study the life of Solomon is to heed the warning, pay attention to the warning. What are we supposed to see? And listen, the story of Solomon is not necessarily uh, an enjoyable story to spend a lot of time in, right? What a tragedy, right? What, what a haunting, disturbing warning that this is. The realities that are revealed in his story are weighty, but they're relevant. What he shows us is potential won't save us. Being completely set up from birth will not save us. Wealth won't save us. 
Wisdom, even wisdom from God is not enough to save us. Having everything we could possibly want in this life, as far as our imagination can spread, will never be enough. That's the warning. We saw it coming. We saw it coming the whole time. We just at times kind of turned our eyes to it. Like, okay, I mean, maybe that wasn't that bad, right? These little compromises, these seemingly insignificant disobedience. He, he entered into a marriage with the, the, the princess of Egypt. That seems weird. Oh, okay, we'll just keep moving on. Just little, little compromises. And as we're going to see today, and as you continue specifically through the book of Kings, Solomon's slow descent eventually destroys everything. Pay attention to that. The sin that begins in the heart of Solomon actually sets the entire nation on trajectory toward exile. That's where it goes. That's where it ends up. And this is why I think this story is heavy for us to read. The warning is not big sins will wreck your life, right? The application from this sermon should not be, well, I'm just not going to marry a thousand people, right? I'm not just going to go out and, and acquire so much gold that silver is worthless. That, that's not the application. That's not the warning to us. No, the message is unchecked compromises slowly and subtly lead you to a place where you won't even recognize yourself anymore. And you're going to see this in the life of Solomon. But I think it's most uh, explicitly put by the apostle Paul. Speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, he wrote, in 1 Corinthians. Now these things happened to them. These things happened to Solomon as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the warning that we're going to look at here in the, at the end of the life of Solomon. Now, the, I, I think we could summarize the warning this way. Turning from God is drifting toward disaster. Now, we're going to spend our time just defining the phrases turning from God and disaster in the rest of our time together. But I want you to pay very close attention to the word drifting first. That's the key word. That's the key warning from the life of Solomon. It, nothing happened abruptly. Nothing happened quickly. If it did, he would have denied it. He would have resisted it. But it was slow, steady. The cracks spread almost unknown. To those paying attention. So as we think about drifting, think about this, this quote from Don Carson who wrote, one of the most striking evidences of sinful human nature lies in the universal propensity for downward drift. He's saying it's universal, okay? He's saying Solomon's not an exception. He's saying you're not an exception. This is how we all are. We have a propensity toward downward drift. In other words, it takes thought, resolve, energy, and effort, intentionality to bring about reform. In the grace of God, sometimes human beings display such virtues. But where such virtues are absent, the drift is invariably toward compromise, comfort, indiscipline, sliding disobedience, and decay that advances, sometimes at a crawl, like in Solomon, and sometimes at a gallop across generations, like Solomon. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift. 
We drift. And so when I say that the warning from the life of Solomon is turning from God, is drifting toward disaster, that is a relevant warning for everybody in this room. All of us, we are like him in this way. It is universal. And so uh, Solomon is, might be an extreme case study, but the bottom line warning is abandoning God will destroy us. Turning from God leads to disaster. So let's ask the question, what does turning from God look like? Let's define that, right? Let's actually, let's actually pay attention. What did he do wrong? What was his specific sin? Now listen, don't ever settle for general generic categories like bad person or good person, right? We, we, uh, we, we need to be more specific. What does that even mean? So what did Solomon do that was so disastrous? So I'm going to read starting in verse 4 um, of 1 Kings chapter 11. Listen to what he did specifically. For when Solomon was old, means a long time had passed, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of, of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not, fo did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. When Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molach, the, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all the foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Whew. Is this the same guy? You guys have spent the last several weeks with this man, watching his, his rise and his interactions with God. Is this the same guy? He's building temples to demon gods all across the mountains in Israel. The same guy who built the temple. Is this the same guy? So specifically, what did he do? What did he do wrong? And I want to say it this way. The pro Solomon's primary sin was a disregard for the Lord and his ways. You see that in the, you see that in the passage. It says at the, that the Lord said not to do. He did. The Lord warned his people, don't do this. He did that. So that's his primary sin. But how did that play out? He had no regard for the Lord or his ways. How did that play out in his life? I think in three ways specifically to this specific to this passage. First, he disregard uh, for God's purpose for marriage. Thousand wives. Well, 700 wives, 300 concubines, right? And, and he just totally disregards Genesis 1 and 2. That God's purpose for marriage was to image his, his image to the rest of the world. Ultimately, to paint a picture of his son and his bride, the church, right? So he just totally disregards that. But why? Let's, let's dig deeper. Why does he do that? See, Solomon is not portrayed as some sort of like sex craze maniac. That's not why. It says specifically that these were princesses. Okay, he's making, he's doing something on purpose. He's making alliances with all kinds of nations. Why? He disregard for God's provision of power. Solomon is not content to rule over Israel, the kingdom of God. He is wanting to rule the world. He wants it all. He's going to establish this treaty and that treaty, and he's, he's going to take as many wives as it takes in order to take over the world. 
He lost trust in God's provision of power. God is the sole reason that he has the wisdom that he has, that he has the power to be the king that he has. And here he's saying, no, I'm gonna take it upon myself. I'm gonna take over the world. And here's how I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna disregard what God says. And instead, I'm gonna do it my way. But let's dig deeper. Ultimately, he has a disregard for the glory of God. He rejects his purpose as a human being to live for the glory of God, and he rejects his purpose as king to lead the people of God towards the worship of God. He's rejected it for the sake of his own glory. That's what he did. That's what turning away from God looks like. But let's get more specific, okay? What does turning from God look like? Specifically with, with Solomon, first, our hearts will turn away first. You hear that repeated, right? You, you heard it a bunch of times. They turned his heart away. They turned his heart away. His heart did not belong to God like David, his father's heart belonged to God, right? That's where it started. An important understanding from the life of Solomon that he teaches us about sin is that all sin is an inside job. Before it ever happens out there, Something is taking place in here. And, and we will follow after that. We are all self-deceived. It's our heart that is lying to us. And, and that makes it very, very easy to compromise because the voice in our head telling us that the compromise is okay or justifying it for us is our voice. And we're really quick to believe us, right? And so we'll be led away by our own voice telling us that it's okay. This is why Solomon would later write, or sometime around here, write, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Protect your heart from compromises, because that's where our hearts are, that's where we turn away first. And you saw in verse, in, in verse one, it says, King Solomon loved many foreign women, and it, he, in verse Two, he clung to these women in love. Way to guard your heart is to ask the question, what do you love? Where are your affections? And be honest about it. Be honest. What do you love? But let me warn you, asking simply, what do I love right now is not enough. It is not enough. Solomon in chapter three, Isaac made a big deal about this as he should that it says there explicitly, Solomon loved the Lord. I think that, and I agree with, with Isaac, I think that's the first time that that takes place in the Bible where it describes a human loving God. But then you get to the end of his life in chapter 11, what's he love? Women. He loved them, clung to these women in love. So the right question is not what do you love? The right question is what are the habits and rhythms of your life leading you to love what you love more? That's the better question. How are you growing your love? How are you assuring that those affections that you have now are going to last over time and through different sets of circumstances? Because our affections drift. Our affections are as stable as we are focused on maintaining and deepening them. And that's true. They wander. Phil Riken, a commentator on 1 Kings, wrote the, writes this, and often quoted, we fall into sin long before we ever fall into disgrace. It's coming, though. It's coming. The sin in our hearts, it's going to lead us astray. It never stays a heart 
issue. And that's the warning, because next, our lives will turn away eventually. So listen, we can get to the place where we are unrecognizable. You, and you've had this experience in your own life, right? Like you, you ever say something and you're like, oh, and you just, it just like wakes you up. You're like, I can't believe I just said that. Where did those words come from? Where did those thoughts even come from? Or, or you do something and you, it sobers you up real fast. And you're like, I can't believe I did that. How did I ever get to the place where I was okay doing what I just did? That's not me. That's not who I want to be. But that's what our hearts, our sin will do to us. This is, this is what our hearts will do. It will slowly drag us away from God and it won't happen fast. He makes explicit when all of this compromise takes place in the life of Solomon, right? It says, when he was old. And that's a terrifying thought to us. Why? We would like to think, because we think very highly of ourselves, we would like to think that if we've been doing this for a little while, right? Then at some point, we'll just, we're good. At some point, we've been doing it long enough. I've been a Christian this long, or I've been worshiping God this long. And it, you just would love to think, I would like to think, you give me enough time, I'm going to be wiser, right? I'm going to be battling my sin for a much longer time. I'm good. At some point, we can hit cruise control. That's what we would like to do. And frankly, Frankly, that's the waters that we swim in. That's, that's the air that we breathe. Everybody, that's the expectation of it. That's the good life, right? Work really, really hard. Get to the point where you can finally kick your feet up. You can do whatever you want. Be as selfish as you want to be because you earned it, right? That's like what we're fed. That's like all the ways that we spend all of our time now is that we can get to that and be as selfish as we could possibly be. And eventually, we can grow cold in our walk with God. So I want to take a minute, if I can, and speak to my older brothers and sisters who are here. And I'm not going to define that for you, okay? No, no age. If you fit that category, I'm talking to you. You, you self-describe you, you self yourself, all right? I'm not doing that. But listen, older people, don't, don't, I want you to know and, and realize and understand and accept you likely have more margin in this season of your life than a lot of the demographics in the church. You just do. You, you have more opportunity to build up the church and serve the church. You, can, you, have, you likely uh, have, have more uh, space to be hospitable with. You likely, Lord willing, have way more wisdom that you can share and you can, you can be in somebody younger than you's life that you can warn them against mistakes that you have made. Spend these years discipling younger believers. Why wouldn't you? Older brothers and sisters, don't you want to sprint through the finish line exhausted? Don't, don't you want to fall into the arms of your king with nothing left in the tank? What, what, are, you, what are you holding it for? What good is it, Right? Now listen, now, now one caveat here. Make sure you get a nap in, okay? Like I don't want anybody like saying like, hey man, I don't want anybody burning out and being like, dude, that guest pastor told me to go real hard and now I'm burning out. No, take a nap, get a nap in and then get going again, all right? I, I said both things, all right? But don't let that happen. So, so as uh, Solomon gets old, his heart turns away 
and we can picture what turning away looks like. Now let's ask, what does disaster look like? Because here's the thing. We need a different category for disaster if Solomon's life is a disaster, right? Because no one in that day would have ever described his life, his rule and reign as a disaster. Nobody, right? You, like you would have walked in, imagine walking in there. You just, you walk in and be like, man, this guy's, this guy's kingdom's a disaster. Everybody would have looked at you and been like, what are you talking about? Have you seen this dude's throne? Like gold, like silver is worthless here. Gold is so prominent that we don't even need silver. It's like rocks around here. What do you mean disaster? And as 21st century Americans, we need to understand, we need to understand this category for disaster because it can't mean stupid, it can't mean poor, and it can't mean ugly because none of those things were true in the case of Solomon. We need to understand this because to the outside world, he did everything right. So how do we even know that this is a disaster? We know for at least two reasons. One, God is telling us it's a disaster. The Bible here is explicit and, and the Bible is not always explicit that something is wrong. A lot of times, most of the time, you've seen this in the book of 1 Kings, that you, you don't have that. It just sort of mentions something, and you're like, hmm, that sounds wrong. And he expects us to know. Here, explicitly, verse 2, verse 9 and 10, it says very explicitly, God, they did what was opposite of what God wanted them to do. So we know it's a disaster because God says it's a disaster. That wealth and wisdom and prominence and fame is actually disastrous because it led him away from me. But the second reason is that we have the gift of hindsight. We know where the rest of this story goes. We get, we get to look backwards and say, oh man, that is a ticking time bomb, right? The, the, the empire of Solomon is a lit fuse that is going to explode in the exile of the Lord's people. See, Solomon never officially nor even completely abandons Yahweh. We never read of that. And that, that for us tends to be the category that we think of as turning away and heading towards disaster. We don't see any of that. He never even fully renounces his, his, his worship of God. Instead, he just believes, as so many other people believe, that he can just add to his faith in any way that he wants to. He can just kind of create his own version of faith. Yeah, he could still trust and believe in God, but he can also do a lot of other things that he deems good also and just live his life that way. He wants to worship God while also simultaneously disregarding everything that God said. And let's be honest, this actually makes a lot of sense to us. We do this often, right? We come to something in the scriptures that maybe we don't like as much or, or it feels heavy or it feels hard or difficult for us. And so maybe, maybe we could just disregard that. See, Solomon's actions here, yeah, they're extravagant, right? But they're, they're not extraordinary. They're normal. They're normal. No other God, ancient or modern, ever demanded exclusive worship from their people. Not like Yahweh. 
where he said in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods, or that Jesus doubled down on and said, you will have no other way to God. Exclusive worship was demanded, and Solomon abandoned that and earned and deserved disaster. But we got to ask, since it's so common, is it acceptable? It's, it's, it happens all the time. Is it acceptable? It, won't God just sort of be happy with whatever faithfulness we sort of throw his way? Well, let's read verse 9 through 11 in chapter 11, or 9 through 11 in chapter 11. It says, listen, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, meaning he didn't just do it once, he's doing it all the time. This has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Is God okay with it? It uses that very, very strong word, fairly terrifying word. He was angry with him. Now, this takes a lot, right? God describes himself in Exodus 34. This is God's description of himself. He says, I am a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger. And we have the entire Bible as proof of that, right? We have the life of Solomon as evidence of that, but we have like the entire Bible. He is he, he watches the disregard for his will constantly. He is slow to anger. And over the life of Solomon, the reign and rule of Solomon, he got to the point where it says, God is angry. And so he will, he will act on that anger. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, you shall not go after other gods. The very thing that Solomon did, and he did to the absolute max in setting up all these temples to these false gods. It says, the gods of people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And he, so, so God is going to act in his anger. And what he says here is he's going to tear the kingdom from you, tear the kingdom from you. And so we'll define disaster this way. Disaster is judgment from God. Disaster is the justice of God demonstrated. He is not just going to watch as his name is dragged through the mud. He will act. Disaster is rejecting our creator and then earning and deserving justice from God. And I got to at least point out, I know that that is a difficult thing to understand or accept in particular sets of circumstances. You know, we'll say, we'll think to ourselves like, I, I, I love thinking of God as a God of love, but I have a really hard time thinking of God as a God of judgment. You know, we, we don't want a God, uh, we, we don't, but we need to think about that claim. We need to make sure that we understand what we're claiming. When we say, I only want love, I don't want judgment, because that's not actually true. It isn't. We, we do not want a God who will not express his love in anger toward evil. We do want him to. Of course we do. And, and if we think that we do not, that says something about us, not about the character of God. I love how Scott Saul said this. 
To accept that God is a God of love, but not a judge, is a luxury that only the privileged and protected can enjoy. The fact that God is a God of justice gives hope to the oppressed, gives hope to those who have had true evil done to them. And so this is good news that God will demonstrate his love in judgment toward evil. And we see that here. But we need to rethink this, what this anger is, this disaster looks like. We need to make sure we have a nice broad category for what this judgment demonstrated actually looks like. Because it's not lightning from heaven, right? There's not just destroyed. And it's not just like misery for, for Solomon. So what does it look like? First is our relationship with God is torn away. See, Solomon had, in verse 9, it says, he, God visited Solomon twice, spoke to him twice. Four times he, he actually uh, uh, showed himself to Solomon, two times. So he, he, he spoke to him directly and showed up to him. And he says, he says, you have an intimate, unique relationship with me, and you've disregarded it. You've abandoned it. He says, you did not keep my covenant as your father David did. It says, you didn't keep your covenant with me. You broke our relationship. So Solomon is just another in the long line of people who have chosen the fruit off the tree. He's like Adam and Eve. He's like Israel after the golden calf. Just like them, he forfeited that relationship for something else. And then the rest of the chapter, he has his purpose from God torn away. It says, you'll be king over my people. And he says, nope, I'm tearing it away. But God is not passive in his judgment. It says that he raises up all these nations against him to come and overthrow uh, Solomon's legacy, everybody after him. And, and God does it in a very specific way. All the nations that come after Solomon are all the nations that he formed treaties with. As if to say, sir, God is saying, uh, searching for safety anywhere but in me is foolish, is foolish. And he exposes how frail and weak seeking safety anywhere else is. And then in verse 43, the end of Solomon's reign is death. And we get no evidence that he turned back to God or he did anything about the, the temples to the demon gods. We get nothing about that. He just dies. So I think perhaps the most sobering warning from the life of Solomon and really all of scripture that we can't ignore is this. It is very, very difficult to finish well. We just have so few examples of it, don't we? You have friends that maybe you've worshiped here in this room with, worshiped Jesus with, thought you would follow Jesus alongside for a really long time and they don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. Or you read story after story after story of a pastor who, who ruins his life, shipwrecks his life for the sake of something so much smaller than the glory of God. It is very difficult to finish well. Friends, this life is too hard. It's too messy. There's too many opportunities for compromise and temptations, and sin. There's way too many opportunities for that. It's too hard to get to the end. And so Jesus gave us so many good gifts that would help us in our endurance, specifically the church. 
You get this opportunity. That's what this is for. Don't ever lose sight of that. It's not just to come and sing songs, not just to come and listen to somebody talk about the Bible. It is so that you can come here and you can keep going together. You can make it to the end together. We need all the help we could possibly get. And this is one of the most beautiful things that God has given us. We will not finish if we abandon God. We need him too much. In fact, in fact, he is everything that we need to get to the end. But apart from him, we won't do it. So I just want to leave you with this last thought as you leave the book of 1 Kings. Turning to God will save us from disaster. The opposite is true. The disaster that we see in the life of Solomon is avoided altogether in turning to God. But what does that look like? What does turning to God actually look like? Because here's the thing, it can't look like never sinning. That's like, I can't, I can't tell you like, hey, here's the way that you turn to God. Never sin again. That can't be it. That's bad news because none of us is going to do that. But here's the thing. And this is another little nugget that's buried in this entire book. They speak of David positively over and over and over again. Kind of drives you crazy sometimes because you know what David did. You know where David was. And yet he's spoken of positively. Why? It even says that he followed God with his whole heart, not like Solomon did. So why? If David is held up as the example, it was not because he was sinless, but because if he sinned, he turned back to God, turned from his sin to God, and he never, ever fully turned away from God. So the answer this morning, I think, to the most important question we could ask is is in one word. I'm going to say it one word in three parts, okay? I think the way that you turn back to God is that you would trust him. You would trust that he is enough, that his idea of the good life is better than the disaster that the world is pitching us, we would trust him. And we see this at least in three ways here as we close. First, trust in his faithfulness. This is buried in the story of Solomon. Listen, in verse 13, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom. Why? But I will give one tribe to your son. Why? For the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. I made David a promise, and I'm going to keep it. You didn't hold up your end of the deal, but I'm going to keep my end of the deal. We can trust in his faithfulness. No matter what disaster we have sprinted our way towards, God will remain true to his promises. Second thing, trust in his mercy. Trust in his mercy. We see this in verse 39. Look at this. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. He's ready to express mercy. He is full of mercy. He is ready to forgive. So you, even if, no matter what disaster you have sprinted toward, no matter what compromises you have given into, you can turn. And when you turn to him, trust that you will find mercy and mercy alone. Why? Why? Where, where do we see this faithfulness and mercy most vividly and beautifully expressed? In Jesus. Trust in his son. Trust in his son. Don't keep running. Never. Don't keep unchecking those compromises. Fight them. But when you give in, turn. Trust that you'll find faithfulness and mercy in Jesus. Let me close with Romans chapter 5. 
For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of our disaster, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath, his wrath and judgment? For if while we were enemies, we were brought back into relationship with God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And that's good news. Good news. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for the privilege of being with my brothers and sisters this morning. Thank you for this wonderful church. Thank you for the leaders that shepherd this place. And I pray that you would extend your hand of blessing over this ministry for decades and generations to come. Father, draw lots of people to Jesus through this place. Lord, I pray now uh, over all of us in this room, Father, if there are compromises in our hearts, Father, where we need now to turn from sin and turn to you, help us in this moment to know that we will find, to trust that we will find your faithfulness, your mercy because of your son. I pray that 